Book Two, Chapter Seven of Arachne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nastasia S. Arachne by George Ebers, translated by Mary J. Safford. Book Two, Chapter Seven. Hermon entered his house with a drooping head. Here he was informed that the Grammatius of the Dioncian artists had already called twice to speak to him concerning an important matter. When he came from the bath, Proclus visited him again. His errand was to invite him to a banquet which was to take place that evening at his residence in a wing of the royal palace. But Hermon was not in the mood to share a joyous revel, and he frankly said so, although immediately after his return he had accepted the invitation to the festival which the whole fellowship of artists would give the following day in honour of the seventieth birthday of the old sculptor euphranor the grammateus alluded to this and most positively insisted that he could not release him for he came not only by his own wish but in obedience to the command of queen arsinoe who desired to tell the creator of the Demeter how highly she esteemed his work and his art. She would appear herself at dessert, and the banquet must therefore begin at an unusually early hour. He, Proclus, was to have the high honor of including the royal lady among his guests solely on Hermon's account, and his refusal would be an insult to the queen. So the artist found himself obliged to relinquish his opposition, he did this reluctantly, but the queen's attention to him and his art flattered his vanity, and, if he was to abandon the intoxicating and barren life of pleasure, it could scarcely be done more worthily than at a festival where the king's consort intended to distinguish him in person. The banquet was to begin in a few hours, yet he could not let the day pass without seeing Daphne and telling her the words of the oracle. He longed, with ardent yearning, for the sound of her voice, and still more to unburden his sorely troubled soul to her. Oh, if only his Myrtilus still walked among the living! How totally different, in spite of his lost vision, would his life have been! Daphne was now the only one whom he could put in his place. Since his return from the oracle, the fear that the rescue Demeter might yet be the work of Myrtilus had again mastered him. However loudly outward circumstances might oppose this, he now felt, with a certainty which surprised him, that this work was not his own. The approval, as well as the doubts, which had arised in others, strengthened his opinion, although even now he could not succeed in bringing it into harmony with the facts. How deep had been the intoxication in which he had so long reeled from one day to the next, since it had succeeded in keeping every doubt of the authorship from his work far from him. Now he must obtain certainty, and Daphne could help him to it, for, as a priestess of Demeter, she possessed the right to procure him access to the cella and get admission for him to climb the lofty pedestal and feel the statue with his fingers, whose sense of touch had become much keener. He would frankly inform her of his fear, and her truthful nature would find the doubt that gnawed his heart as unendurable as he himself. It would have been a grave crime to woo her before he was relieved of this uncertainty, and he would utter the decisive words that very day, 
and ask her whether her love was great enough to share the joys and sorrows of life with him, the blind man, who perhaps must also divest himself of false fame. Time pressed. He called at Archias's house with a wreath on his head and in festival robes. But Daphne was in the temple, whither old Philippus and Thion had gone, and his uncle was attending a late session of the council. He would have liked to follow Daphne to the sanctuary, but the late hour forbade it, and he therefore only charged Grace to tell his young mistress that he was going to Proculus's banquet, and would return early the next morning to discuss a most important subject with her. Then he went directly to the neighboring palace. The queen might have appeared already, and it would not do to keep her waiting. He was aware that she lived at variance with her husband, but how could he have suspected that she cherished the more than bold design of hurling the sovereign from his throne and seizing the Egyptian crown herself? Proclus and Althea were among the conspirators who supported Arsinoe, and the queen thought it would be an easy matter to win over to her cause and herself the handsome sculptor, whom she remembered at the last Dionysia. The wealthy blind artist, so highly esteemed among the members of his profession, might become valuable to the conspiracy, for she knew what enthusiastic devotion the Alexandrian artists felt for the king, and everything depended upon forming a party in her own favor among them. This task was to fall to Hermon, and also another, still more important one, for he, his nephew and future son-in-law, if any one, could persuade the wealthy Archias to lend the plot his valuable aid. Hitherto the merchant had been induced. It is true to advance large sums of money to the queen, but the loyal devotion which he showed to her royal husband had rendered it impossible to give him even a hint of the conspiracy. Althea, however, declared that the blind man's marriage to Daphne was only a question of time, and Proclus added that the easily excited nephew would show himself more pliant than the uncle if Arsinoe exerted upon him the irresistible charm of her personality. When Hermon entered the residence of the Grammatius in the palace, the guests had already assembled. The queen was not to appear until after the feast, when the mixing jars were filled. The place by Hermon's side, which Althea had chosen for herself, would then be given up to Arsinoe. The sovereign was as unaccustomed to the society of a blind artist as Hermon was to that of a queen, and both eagerly anticipated the approaching meeting. Yet it was difficult for Hermon to turn a bright face toward his companion. These sources of anxiety and grief which had previously burdened his mind would not vanish, even under the roof of the royal palace. Althea's presence reminded him of Tennis, Ledsha, and Nemesis, who for a long time seemed to have suspended her persecution, but since he had returned from the abode of the oracle was again asserting the old right to him. During many a sleepless hour of the night he had once more heard the rolling of her terrible wheel. Even before the journey to the oasis of Amon, everything life could offer him, the ideal rank, in his perpetual darkness, had seemed shallow and scarcely worth stretching out his hand for it. True, an interesting conversation still had power to charm him, but often during its continuance, the full consciousness of his misfortune forced itself upon his mind, for the majority of the subjects discussed by the artists came to them through the medium of sight, and referred to new creations of architecture, sculpture, and painting, 
from whose enjoyment his blindness debarred him. When returning home from a banquet, if his way lay through the city, he was reminded of the superb buildings, marble terraces and fountains, statues and porticos, which had formerly satiated his eyes with delight, and must now be illuminated with a brilliant radiance by the morning sunbeams, though a hostile fate shut them out from his eyes, starving and thirsting for beautiful forms. But it seemed harder to him still to bear that his blinded eyes refused to show him the most beautiful of all beautiful things, the human form, when he lingered among the ephebi, or the spectators of a feastal procession, or visited the gymnasium, the theatre, the aphrodosium, or the panium gardens, where the beautiful women met at sunset. The queen was to appear immediately, and when she took her place near him, his blindness would again deprive him of the sight of her delicately cut features, prevent his returning the glances from her sparkling eyes, and admiring the noble outlines of her thinly veiled figure. Would his troubled spirit at least permit him to enjoy and enter without restraint into the play of her quick wit? Perhaps her arrival would relieve him from the discomfort which oppressed him here. A stranger, out of his own sphere, he fell chilled among these closely united men and women, to whom no tie bound him save the presence of the same host. He was not acquainted with the single individual except the mythograph crates, who for several months had been one of the members of the museum, and who had attached himself to Hermann at Straton's lectures. The artist was surprised to find this man in such a circle, but he learned from Athena that the young member of the museum was a relative of Proculus, and a suitor of the beautiful Nyko, one of the queen's ladies-in-waiting, who was among the guests. Crates had really been invited in order to win him over to the queen's cause, but charming fair-haired Nyko had been commissioned by the conspirators to persuade him to sing Arsinoe's praises among his professional associates. The rest of the men present stood in close connection with Arsinoe, and were fellow conspirators among her husband's throne in life. The ladies whom Proclus had invited were all confidants of Arsinoe, the wives and daughters of his other guests. All were members of the highest class of society, and their manners showed the entire freedom from restraint that existed in the queen's immediate circle. Althea profited by the advantage of being Hermon's only acquaintance here. So when he took his place on the cushion at her side, she greeted him familiarly and cordially, and she had treated him for a long time, wherever they met, and in a low voice told him, sometimes in a kindly tone, sometimes with a biting sarcasm, the names and characters of the other guests. The most aristocratic was Amintas, who stood highest of all in the queen's favor because he had good reason to hate the other Arsinoe, the sister of the king. His son had been the royal dame's first husband, and she had deserted him to marry Lysimachus, the aged king of Thrace. The Rodnian Trisippus, her liege and trusted counselor, also possessed great influence over the queen. The noble lady, whispered Althea, needs the faithful devotion of every well-disposed subject, for perhaps you have already learned how cruelly the king embitters the life of the mother of his three children. Many a caprice can be forgiven the suffering Ptolemy, who recently expressed a wish that he could change places with the common workmen, whom he saw eating their meal with a good appetite, and who is now tortured by the gout. Yet he watches the hapless woman with the jealousy of a tiger, though he himself is openly faithless to her. 
what is the queen to him since the widow of lysimachus returned from thrace no from cassandria ephesus and sacred samothrace or whatever other places there are which would no longer tolerate the murderess the king's sister the object of his love cried hermon incredulously she must be forty years old now very true althea assented but we are in egypt where marriages between brothers and sisters are pleasing to gods and men and besides we make our own mortal loss here her age we women are only as old as we look and the leeches and tiring women of this beauty of forty practise arts which give her the appearance of twenty-five yet perhaps the king values her intellect more than her person and the wisdom of a hundred serpents is certainly united in this woman's head she will make our poor queen suffer unless real friends guard her from the worst the three most trustworthy ones are here amyntas the liege chrysippus and the admirable proclus let us hope that you will make this three-leaved clover the luck-promising four-leaved one your uncle too has often with praiseworthy generosity helped arsinoe in many an embarrassment only make the acquaintance of this beautiful royal lady and the last drop of your blood will not seem too precious to shed for her besides proclus told me so in confidence you have little flavour to expect from the king how long he kept you waiting from the first word concerning a work which justly transported the whole city with delight when he did finally summon you he said things which must have wounded you that is going too far replied hermon then he kept back his real opinion althea protested had i not made it a rule to maintain absolute silence concerning everything i hear in conversation from those with whom i am closely associated here she was interrupted by trisippus who asked if althea had told her neighbour about his rodnian eye salve he winked at her and made a significant gesture as he spoke and then informed the blind artist how graciously arsinoe had remembered him when she heard of the remedy by whose aid many a wonderful cure of blind eye had been made in rhodes the royal lady had inquired about him and his sufferings with almost sisterly interest and althea eagerly confirmed the statement hermon listened to the pair in silence he had not been able to see it is true yet he had perceived their design as if the loss of sight had sharpened his mental vision he imagined that he could see the favourite and althea nudge each other with sneering gestures and believed that their sole purpose was to render him he knew not for what subject the obedient tool of the queen who had probably also succeeded in persuading his usually cautious uncle to render her great services the remembrance of arsinoe's undignified conduct at the dionysia and the shameful stories of her which he had heard returned to his mind at the same time he saw daphne rise before him in her aristocratic dignity and kindly goodness and a smile of satisfaction hovered around his lips as he said to himself the spider althea again but in spite of my blindness i will be caught neither in her net nor in the queen's they are the last to bar the way which leads to daphne in real happiness the Rodian was just beginning to praise Arsinoe also as a special friend and connoisseur of the sculptor's art when Crates, Hermon's fellow student, asked the blind artist, in behalf of his beautiful companion, why his Demeter was placed upon a pedestal which, to others as well as himself, seemed too high for the size of the statue. 
Hermon replied that he had heard several make this criticism, but the priests of the goddess refused to take it into account. Here he hesitated, for, like a blow from an invisible hand, the thought darted through his mind that perhaps, on the morrow, he would see himself compelled before the whole world to cast aside the crown of fame which he owed to the statue on the lofty pedestal. He did not have even the remotest idea of continuing to deck himself with false renown if his dread was realized. Yet he doubtless imagined how this whole aristocratic circle, with the queen, Althea, and Proclus at its head, would turn with reckless haste from the hapless man who had led them into such a shameful error. Yet what mattered it, even if these miserable people considered themselves deceived and pointed the finger of scorn at him? Better people would thereby be robbed of the right to accuse him of faithlessness to himself. This thought darted through his heated brain like a flash of lightning, and when, in spite of his silence, the conversation was continued and Althea told the others that only Hermon's blindness had prevented the creation of a work which could have been confidently expected far to surpass a Demeter, since it seemed to have been exactly suited to his special talent, he answered his beautiful companion's remark curtly and absently. She perceived this with annoyance and perplexity. A woman who yearns for the regard of all men, and makes love a toy, easily lessens the demands she imposes upon individuals. Only, even though love has wholly disappeared, she still claims consideration, and Althea did not wish to lose Hermon's regard. When Amintas, the head of the conspirators, attracted the attention of the company by malicious remarks about the king's sister, the Thracian laid her hand on the blind artist's arm, whispering, "'Has the image of the Arachne, which, at tennis, charmed you in the presence of the angry Zeus, completely vanished from your memory? How indifferent you look! But I tell you,' her deep blue eyes flashed as she spoke, "'that so long as you were still a genuine creating artist, the case was different.' Even while putting the last touches of the file to the Demeter, for which Archias's devout daughter posed as your model, another whom you could not banish from your mind filled your imagination. Though so loud a denial is written on your face, I persist in my conviction, and that no idle delusion ensnares me I can prove. Hermon raised his sightless eyes to her inquiringly, but she went on with eager positiveness. Or, oh, if you did not think of the weaver while carving the goddess— how did you happen to engrave a spider on the ribbon twined around the ears of grain in Demeter's hand? Not the smallest detail of a work produced by the hand of a valued friend escapes my notice, and I perceived it before the Demeter came to the temple on the lofty pedestal. Now I would scarcely be able to discover it in the dusky cellar, yet at that time I took pleasure in the sight of the ugly insect, not only because it is cleverly done, but because it reminded me of something. Here she lowered her voice still more that pleased me, though probably it would seem less flattering to the daughter of Archias, who perhaps is better suited to act as guide to the blind. How bewildered you look! Eternal gods! Many things are forgotten after long months have passed, but it will be easy for me to sharpen your memory. At the time Hermon had finished the Demeter, the spider called to me, he scratched me on the gold. But at that very time, yes, my handsome friend, I can reckon accurately, you had met me, Althea, in tennis. I had brought the spider-woman before your eyes. Was it really nothing but foolish vanity that led me to the conviction that you were thinking of me also when you engraved on the ribbon the despised spider four, which, however, I always felt a certain regard, with the delicate web beneath its slender legs? 
Hitherto Hermon had listened to every word in silence, laboring for breath. He was transported as if by magic to the hour of his return from Pelusium. He saw himself enter Myrtilus's studio and watch his friend scratch something, he did not know what, upon the ribbon which fastened the bunch of golden grain. It was, nay, it could have been nothing else, that very spider. The honored work was not his, but his dear friend's. How the exchange had occurred he could not now understand, but to disbelieve that it had taken place would have been madness or self-deception. Now he also understood the doubts of Sotilus and the king. Not he, Myrtilus, and he alone, was the creator of the much-lauded Demeter. This conviction raised a hundred-pound weight from his soul. What was applause? What was recognition? What was the fame and laurel wreaths? He desired clearness and truth for himself in all the world, and, as frantic, he suddenly sprang from his cushions, shouting to the startled guests, "'I myself and this whole great city were deceived. The Demeter is not mine, not the work of Hermon. The dead Myrtilus created it.' Then, pressing his hand to his brow, he called his student friend to his side, and, as the scholar anxiously laid his arm on his shoulder, whispered, "'Away, away from here!' Only let me get out of doors, into the open air. Crates, bewildered and prepared for the worst, obeyed his wish. But Althea and the other guests left behind felt more and more impressed by the suddenly awakened conviction that the hapless blind man had now also become the victim of madness. End of Book 2, Chapter 7 Recording by Nastasia S.